Here we go, Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Larry Walker, as Stephen said. I'm on staff at this church. My family's waving to me from the back row. Um, I'm also one of the elders here. Uh, my job is director of outreach. Uh, we've never met. It's interesting. We've been gone for 16 days on a support trip uh, fundraising for this job in the South. And there's already like a bunch of faces of people that I don't really know here. So if we've never met, I'd love to meet you, get to know you, get coffee. We can talk about Christianity. We can talk about this church. We can talk about this sermon or whatever you want. Uh, so I'd love to meet you. Um, right now, we're, we've been going through the book of Genesis over basically a couple of months now, I believe, about two months, and going kind of story by story. It's a really important book of the Bible because it's the foundation of so much of what we believe. So much of the New Testament is looking back to this. Um, it's a scripture. Scripture is not a collection of independent uh, books that are sort of duct taped together. It's one cohesive story. Um, even if it doesn't seem like that, there are just there are little connections here and there. So it's very important. This book will teach us a lot about who God is, what he's like. Uh, it'll teach us a lot about who we are and what we're like uh, and what God has done in Christ to bring us together. It's also a book full of stories that are really hard to hear. The Bible records a lot of things that it doesn't approve of, but it records them because it's history and it's life. Um, and some of these things are really hard to talk about and they're really necessary because they're reality. Um, the story is no different. It's dark and it's sad. It's a story of, a, of one brother murdering another brother. And I, I believe it's full of these warnings, these generational warnings uh, that we should take heed of. So how does it begin? I have just three, three basic things to talk about. This, this sermon doesn't feel super tight to me. Sometimes you get there and you're like, uh, this just feels just right. I got it all. This feels like a, a, some loose ponderings. So the three areas that I want to talk about are, like, what is this offering? Why doesn't God accept Cain's, but he accept, accepts Abel's? 
the next one is I want to talk about um, what is the legacy of sin whenever we just abide sin in us and pass it to our children. And then what do we do to break those cycles? So let's just dive in. So the story is there are two brothers. The older is Cain and the younger is Abel. And Cain uh, grows produce and he works the field and raises crops. And Abel works with animals and raises livestock. A time comes for them to present their offerings to God. And Cain brings his and Abel brings his. And God uh, discerns their hearts and he accepts Abel's but not Cain's. Uh, Why? Hopefully we'll understand a little more. The passage also says that Cain became angry and his face fell. Um, I think about this a lot. Um, My wife had a friend in college named Monica who... uh, Whenever she didn't, when she didn't like someone and they were near her, uh, or if like a guy asked her out that she was totally disinterested in, she would make like this like <clears throat> face, you know? And it was so often that Mandy and her friends got used to just saying face to her. Or whenever her face would do this, she would like, she would never be able to bluff and poke her. She wore her, all her thoughts on her face. And uh, I always think like Cain just needed like a, a Mandy in his life, you know? Um, man, this is a quiet crowd. Um, <laughs> hey, thanks, man. Um, the reason why God didn't accept Cain's offering, we, we learn about this in Hebrews 4, or 11, 4, is that God knows the hearts of men and women. And he knew that Abel's offering was an offering in faith, and Cain's was not. It says Cain's heart was evil, Cain's heart was wicked. And if we have any doubt that God's discernment of their hearts was accurate. Look no further than what happens next. So God asked Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, door and its desires for you, but you must rule over it. So Cain is angry. What son wouldn't be? I have two sons there in the back row over here. If they're John and John is the older, Jack is the, the second. And if they brought something to me to like try to please me, or get favor with me, and I was like, Jack, good job, man. You know, I really appreciate this. And John was like, what's your problem? You know, what's up with your face today? You know, I don't, you know, I don't accept this. I feel like there would be some tension there that we could understand, we could wrap our mind around it. It's really easy for us to understand Cain's feelings from a human perspective, I feel like. But the difference is, is that God can read hearts. Uh, and the manner in which we offer gifts to God really matters. Um, I have this memory. I don't know if you guys have memories from when I'm almost 40, um, but I have memories from my life that if I could have like a time machine and go back and change, I would. Just dumb things I've said or done. And one of those memories is about about four or five months before I became a Christian, I was at a church and uh, like the offering plate was going around. And I remember it came to like the youth group section and I took a, like a wad of like money I'd made selling weed to my friends and like just took this giant wad out and like sprinkled it in the, the offering plate for everyone to see. It was just like uh, this very showy, ridiculous thing. If you've seen Seinfeld, there's a, an episode where George Costanza wants to get credit for the tip at a calzone shop, you know? And he like, he puts the money in, but then the people don't see it. So then he tries to reach back in and pull it out. And then they catch him pulling it out. And they think he's robbing like the tip jar. Anyway, that's what it felt like. And, and there's a way that we can offer things to God that is a little bit like that, you know? And the condition of our heart matters. If you read uh, Psalm 51:17 says, 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So, I almost read backwards. If we offer our gifts to God, only thinking about what it gets us, or outdoing someone else, or thinking that we can get God to sort of owe us, or do our bidding, uh, which is, this happens, you know, Tower of Babel is a bit, a bit of that, then our offering to God isn't pure. It isn't motivated by a humble and repentant heart, which is what God's looking for. And it isn't a heart that loves or believes God. So, and what comes from a life like this? Uh, what comes, what's the fruit of Cain's life? Because something's about to happen that just changes generations in his family. Um, so the legacy of ungodly anger, bitterness, and lack of repentance. So Cain spoke to Abel's brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And one translation I read indicates that this was Cain's idea to go on a walk. So sort of like, hey, brother, you want to go on a walk? You know, and he gets him out in the field, and he murders his brother. So this is a premeditated murder of your little brother. It's about the most grievous thing that I can think of. Um, older brothers are supposed to look out for the little brother. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And his response is like one of the coldest things in scripture. Uh, he says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I can't imagine, as a father, I have four kids, I can't imagine a more devastating thing than having one of my children kill one of my other children. Um, this passage, the reason why I'm the guy up here preaching is Stephen and I were meeting on like Tuesday, I think, something like that, and uh, we just realized that I've been chewing on this passage for like a couple months in my head. Um, hadn't written much, but just had thoughts on it, just as I'm pondering the world around us. Um, I ponder the polarization of our nation a lot, and uh, I don't think I have all the answers, but I'll offer to you my ponderings. I'll explain what I mean. I think a lot about generational sin, a lot. You know, I've spoken a lot about my father's side of my family and the dysfunction there. Uh, on my mother's side, I have a great-grandfather who murdered his wife in front of his 12-year-old daughter, fled the state. Um, that 12-year-old daughter became an alcoholic. That's my grandmother. Uh, and her daughter abandoned me when I was about three or four. And, uh, and I'm good. There's no effects in my life, you know? Uh, hasn't affected my kids at all. Um, so, um, in this passage, in the next, and the next, and in some ways, kind of all of human history, uh, is just one story after another story of generational sin, right? And you know Cain's father didn't take responsibility for his family either. Uh, he ate of the fruit. He didn't guard and protect his wife and his family as he was supposed to. And then he isolated himself from God when he sinned, and he passed that on to his son. And Cain passes that on to his descendants. You hear about Lamech, which I'm sure we're going to talk about next week. And it gets worse and worse. And I often wonder what we're passing on to our kids, not just in this nation, but in this church. What are we passing on to our children? And there are lots of warnings, actually, in the New Testament that refer back to this. There's Hebrews 11, there's Jude 11, there's uh, 1 John 3. Um, and we're warned in the church to not have a spirit like Cain. And I don't think that's because they were, like, murdering each other nonstop in the church, you know? I think it's because there's a way that that can get in there. And 1 John 3 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And this practicing righteousness 
is not about outward things. It's, it's that humble and contrite heart that I just read about in Psalm 51. He continues and says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. For we know that anyone that we've passed out of spiritual death, I put spiritual in there, but we've passed out of death into life, spiritual death into life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Everything around us in the world right now is screaming the opposite of this passage about loving your brother. We are told in Scripture to love one another. The world tells us to hate one another, to mock, to blame, to make an enemy and an other of anyone who thinks differently than us. It's a fool's game, and we often fall for it. What are we passing on to our children? What are the kids around us in this church seeing, and what are we modeling? My wife and I have the privilege of, most people don't call support raising a privilege. I think it's a privilege. Uh, we get to visit the South a few times a year. And my wife is from Tennessee, and we spend time with brothers and sisters in the Lord who support us for the work at this church. And over the last couple of years, um, the contrast between these two nations that we call the United States has become more and more stark to me. Um, it's so predictable when something happens in the world, what, what, what this side of the country will think, what this side of the country will think. Uh, from the pandemic and all its subcategories of judgment towards one another, um, to elections, to Supreme Court decisions, to political and social movements, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're being very much driven apart. And social media and news outlets and politicians and the screaming masses around us are kind of like this intense cultural current. And they pull us apart. And they're calling us to be part of Team Blue or Team Red. And before we know it, it's more, uh, we're, like, we're kind of more a part of our gang than we are when we are part of the church. And we do things for show, and we do things for approval, and making sure that we're kind of aligning with our gang's values. I say gangs uh, because that's what it is. I grew up around gangs. Uh, I have friends who are in gangs. A lot of my work before this job is working with gang members, and this is just a gang war. It's even blue and red. It's the Bloods and the Crips. It's the same thing. Uh, I got one laugh out of that. But it's true. Uh, you, you, it's so easy to demonize the other side. So some questions from you. Um, I think it's easy to hate our brothers and sisters that we don't even really know. And we've lost our way as a church often. And so here's some questions I've asked myself and for you from 1 John. Does the world hate you for your faith? Do our brothers and sisters in our neighborhoods know that we're a Christian and that we love them and are there for them more than they know our political leanings? What's the sign in our window say? I've been pondering this passage from Matthew 7 a lot lately. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and it's all around us. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So what is the narrow way in this world? What is the way between the red and the blue gang war in our nation? How do we not get bogged down in the perpetual cultural wars and forget that Jesus has risen? How do we pass the faith on to our children and live it out in front of them that isn't just this like 
bastardized, baptized political view? What is the narrow way of Jesus? I'm not really positive the answer, frankly. Um, my wife and I were talking about this the other night. And lately I've been doing this thing where like, I kind of close my eyes and I'm trying to discern what the narrow way is in my own heart, you know? Because uh, that's, that's where the mess is, right? The problem with Cain is in there, you know? Um, the problem with me is in here. The problem with the world is in here. Um, and I'll kind of close my eyes and I'll try to picture the narrow way. And what I end up picturing is uh, it's like uh, the bridge in the best Indiana Jones movie, The Last Crusade. You know, at the very end where he like has to cross this bridge. Anybody know? And it, it, probably like an 80s movie. Every younger person's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, they're like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, right? Um, so it's the, uh, it's the narrow way. And on either side is just utter destruction, right? And when I close my eyes and I picture like this way, the way through is like this narrow path of repentance and humility. And every time I know that my foot is about to slip is when I bump into something in my heart that's, that feels like self-righteousness. When I find hatred for my brothers and sisters there, I know that my foot is slipping off the path. When, when I find myself arguing with people who aren't even in the room, and I know the way forward is repentance and reliance on Jesus to lead me out of my own sinfulness, my own sinful desires, my own passions. So what are we passing on to our children? How do we break this cycle? One, I would say acknowledge that the world around us has a spirit of Cain. And we're drawn to it. And we're often led by it. And we're very slow to repent. We're very slow to forgive. We're slow to be reconciled. We are slow to examine our own sin. We hold on to kind of old bitternesses and cling to it as part of our identity. And we're slow to examine our own sin before we judge someone else's life. We're slow to lay down our life for our brothers and sisters. We're slow to lay down our opinions for our brothers and sisters. We do not love our neighbor as ourself, and therefore we do not love God with all that we are. And we keep grudges. We're like Cain, and that we will justify our sin and mourn the consequences and the punishment, but not the sin itself. That's what he says in the passage. My punishment is more than I can bear. He never says that I've killed my brother. Never. Never. He's the weight of it, the weight of not being able to farm the land and the mark on him and people hating him is what burdens him. We are a nation of Cain's. So good news, guys, right? It's real somber in here right now. Um, the last thing here is the question, are we our brother's keeper, is the answer here. Um, the answer is a resounding yes, yes, yes. Whoever that enemy on the other side of the line is, you're responsible for them, and they're responsible for you. But that knowledge isn't enough, actually, because time and time again, we will continue to make decisions like Cain, where we look out for ourselves and our gang and our side and not our brother. There was one person in all of history who did this perfectly, Sunday school answer, who had a true, contrite, and broken heart, compassion for his brothers and sisters, and who, like Abel, offered a beautiful sacrifice. But instead of it being the lamb from the field, it's him. We're actually, in some ways, like, Abel is, is a foreshadowing of who Christ is. And we are absolutely, like, descendants of Cain. And we participating in the killing of Christ. And we must come to grips in our own hearts with what Jesus has done for us, our condition. When, we're, when we really begin to wrap our mind around what Christ has done for us, and that we really are like Cain, and then we simply must live, speak, and serve as the presence of Christ. Because he is the brother who gave up his life for us, even though we were and sometimes still are like Cain. 
Jesus is worth it. Our God is worth it. Our brothers and sisters are worth it. Our children are worth it. So, in closing, Liberty Church, imagine, you know, our, our, like, um, our mission statement as we exist as a church to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Christ in the rewards, right? So imagine this neighborhood where we don't participate in the culture wars, where we don't participate in the left-right paradigm, but where we seek to be the presence of Christ, raise our kids to be the presence of Christ, where we get off social media, where we get off social media, and we pursue presence and peacemaking. Presence and peacemaking. Seeking to be the presence of Christ in our own marriages, families, and homes. Putting aside the gang wars and culture wars and seeking to be the presence of Christ in this nation and this city. Even as our neighbors war with one another. Brothers and sisters, let's pursue the narrow way that leads to life. And let's leave a better legacy for our children than this world has to offer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.